I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological trip through the Gospels, today we're looking at Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, down through chapter 13, verse 21. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So here's where we are with regard to Jesus' ministry. Jesus' location is perhaps still Judea, but that's not certain in today's reading. The session that we're about to read likely takes place in the fall of the year before Jesus' crucifixion. That's in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, which we'll read in a few moments. For an evaluation of the chronological order of this event, then you may want to take a look at the notes at the end of John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1 of Luke, Jesus gives a warning about those Pharisees, verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven." Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now let's begin with an important note here. Verse 1 begins with a relational clause, and that clause is, in the meantime. That ties this passage to the events of Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. That's the preceding section of reading. Those Pharisees are up to no good. Jesus has just had a confrontation with them in chapter 11, where they were trying to entrap him into saying something punishable by law. Verses 53 and 54 of chapter 11 say this, And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. You know, they just couldn't outsmart the Son of God, though. Now, Jesus issues a warning here 
about these very Pharisees in verse 1, the verse that follows chapter 11, verses 53 and 54, which we just looked at. And he's talking to his disciples here when he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, whenever leaven is used in an analogy, the context focuses on the way leaven spreads. It doesn't stay contained. So here the hypocrisy of the Pharisees was spreading. That's the warning issued by Jesus to his disciples after the verbal duel that Jesus had with them. That was in chapter 11. Expect these Pharisees to bring on the persecution at this point. Jesus goes on to warn these very men who proclaim to represent God are in reality hypocrites. And they've denied the Messiah. Therefore, he says in verses 8 and 9 that he will deny them, the Pharisaical hypocrites, before God himself. Now, it's very important that we understand verse 10 here. It says, And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. So, are there people who just can't be saved because of such a sin? Well, to understand this verse, context is really, really critical. And this context goes all the way back to the preceding chapter, to Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 23. Just prior to supper at the Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 11, verse 37, Jesus had cast out a demon from a man, and the Jewish leaders there accused him of doing it in the name of Satan himself. It's vital that we understand what brought on this condemnation. Specifically, they rejected the deity of Jesus, and what's more, they ascribed his source of power to Satan himself. You simply don't get a stronger rejection of Jesus as Savior than that. Now, I personally believe that this situation is unique in that these leaders viewed face-to-face -face the manifestations of the Spirit through Jesus, and yet... Despite that, they accused Jesus of being motivated by Satan. Now, you may want to take a look at Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 23, along with its parallel passage, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 37, to get a more comprehensive perspective there. In the commentary on that passage, we explain in more detail what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. By the way, notice that Luke 12.2 doesn't mean in context what it seems to mean when isolated. One might mistakenly think that this verse means that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees will be exposed when Jesus says this. He says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. However, Jesus explains the statement in verse 3. And here's what he says. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. In other words, the message of Jesus Christ will not be stopped. That understanding is validated in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, where Jesus had on a previous occasion stated this. He said, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. However, Jesus does seem to be making a contrast between the secret deeds and words of the Pharisees as compared to the open words of Jesus and his disciples. Beginning with verse 13 of Luke chapter 12, 
Jesus encourages the audience to lay up some treasures in heaven. Verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, So you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God? Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." This section starts out with a man asking for a little financial intercession between his brother and himself. The Greek word used for teacher in verse 13 is didaskalos. The word occurs 58 times in the New Testament. 48 of the times are in the Gospels, and 41 of them referred to Jesus himself. 29 occurrences are in direct address to Jesus. So this uh, man was addressing Jesus as one who was a well-respected Jewish rabbi as one who is an expert in passing judgment regarding these kinds of disputes. Jesus uses this opportunity to talk about the satisfaction of sacrificing everything you have to follow Jesus. As on other occasions, Jesus is calling for total abandonment of one's current life to follow Jesus. Now let's keep in mind that Jesus is less than six months away from crucifixion at this point, to follow Jesus here is to literally be called upon to sacrifice one's life. That's why Jesus tells them in verse 22 when he says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. It's important to recall that in the end, no one stood with Jesus, as we see in Mark chapter 14, verse 50, where it is said that after Jesus was taken prisoner in preparation for his crucifixion, the following... 
Then they all forsook him and fled. Jesus explains here the high cost of discipleship in those extremely difficult days leading up to his crucifixion. He uses a parable to explain the fleeting satisfaction of physical wealth. The lesson to believers today from this passage is to regard everything we own as belonging to God and be thankful for God's provisions. In verses 35 to 59 of Luke chapter 12, Jesus encourages his audience to keep watching for the kingdom. Verse 35, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants." But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few, for every one to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division." For from now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against his son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison." I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. Now, don't be confused by this passage. You've got to see the Pharisees in this passage. The Pharisees, 
This whole discourse began back in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, and it was in reply to the Jesus bashing that had been taking place on the occasion back in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. That's why we looked at those verses earlier. Jesus is still presenting himself as the Messiah to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. So is Jesus specifically referencing a future time in this passage, or is he talking about right then and right there? Well, look at his words in verse 40 here. He says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter is ready for the kingdom to be established and understands that Jesus is the Messiah. So his question in verse 41 is natural when he says, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? So here's what Peter knows for sure. He believes Jesus is the Messiah, and he's expecting the kingdom to be set up soon. But the Pharisees, well, they've rejected that message. So Peter wonders this, Jesus, who are you talking about with this parable of people being caught by surprise? Well, that would be the people in verse 45 when it says, But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk. Well, here's your question. Who are these people rejecting the Messiah and looking for another while at the same time abusing their subjects? Now, if you said the Jewish leaders, meaning the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you are correct. Oh, and by the way, the penalty of verses 47 to 58, it's intended to indict the Pharisees with all their knowledge of Scripture. They still rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Now, we see here that Jesus' message will bring division. What is this baptism of verse 50? Well, that's his crucifixion. Some will acknowledge the identity of Jesus as Messiah and Savior, but others will not. This will result in division even among families. Verse 53 looks so much like Micah chapter 7, verse 6. It's easy to conclude that Jesus is drawing from this passage in his comments here. Now, here's what Micah 7, 6 says. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Micah there is talking about the restoration of Israel and the kingdom to be established by the Messiah. Now, inquiring minds want to know what the reference to fire is all about in verse 49. Some commentators say that Jesus is referring to judgment, while others say that the gospel spreads like fire. The Greek construction of verse 49 makes it kind of difficult to cleanly translate into English. So here's what I've done. I've done a word-for-word translation. So literally, here's what it says. Now, keep in mind, this sentence may not make a lot of sense to you in English, but I've done a word-for-word translation from Greek. So here it is. Fire I came to cast into the earth, and what I wish, or will or desire, if now, or already, it has been set fire, or lit up. You can see why some say the fire is judgment, while others say the fire is the spreading of the gospel. However, based upon the baptism reference in verse 50, I'm inclined to think that Jesus is talking about spreading the word of the gospel message in this instance. The baptism here is his crucifixion mission. But that must wait 
until the gospel message has been sufficiently spread. In verse 54, Jesus begins an indictment against these Jewish leaders for being unable or perhaps unwilling to use their knowledge of Scripture to discern that the Messiah has come. It's as simple as predicting rainfall from approaching clouds, so how'd they miss it? Was it an innocent oversight on their part? Nope. It was hypocrisy, identified right there in verse 56. So that takes us back to the beginning of this discourse in verse 1, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In chapter 13, we see that Israel only has a few months left to repent, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Of those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after you can cut it down. We have no background on the incident referenced in verses 1 and 2. It would appear that Pilate had killed Jews making sacrifices, presumably for perceived rebellion against Rome. Likewise, we know nothing of the tragedy referenced in verse 4. Now, here's what we do know. Repentance, which is correctly defined as a change of mind or attitude toward the Messiah's coming, well, that's vital. The time frame of the parable here is critical to this message. It's three years, as you see. At the beginning of the three years' ministry of Jesus, the Jewish leaders rejected the Messiah and the kingdom. Now, three years later, and just prior to his crucifixion, the fig tree, which would be the Jewish leaders of Israel, well, still bears no fruit. In other words, the rejection continues. Perhaps Jesus is still referencing Micah's prophecy of the kingdom in Micah chapter 7, verse 1. Specifically, they still haven't received the message of the Messiahship of Jesus and the coming kingdom. Notice verse 8. It says, But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. The chronology of this event in relation to Christ's crucifixion is quite significant here. You see, Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. That festival was held each year in the seventh month, Tishri. Now, here we are at some point afterward, but prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Since Jesus is talking about the Jewish leader's rejection of this messianic message, this fig tree not bearing figs is certainly a reference to them and their failure to bear figs. In other words to receive the messianic message. Thus, the reference to these three years in verse 7 must be significant inasmuch as Jesus had been ministering on earth at this point to these Jews for three years. So here's the fig tree parable. 
three years and no figs. These fig trees, by the way, yielded figs twice each year, in the first month, which was Nisan, and in the eighth month, Keshvan. So here we are, presumably in the eighth month, four to five months prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. That's going to be in the first month of the following year, which is Nisan. Though fig trees should be bearing fruit in the eighth month, the one in Jesus' parable, it's not bearing fruit. So the goal in this parable is for the fig tree to bear fruit for the next cycle, the one that will be occurring in the first month just prior to the crucifixion. So the barren fig tree here is a metaphor for Jewish rejection of the Messiah. Incidentally, some have questioned the twice-each-year yield of figs in Israel. Uh, if you'll look at the link that I have on this page of the written notes, you'll see that I've uh, got a link to some photographs that show the full cycle with two fig-bearing seasons each year. So here we are just a few months from the crucifixion, the final rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the establishment of the kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament would take place at the cross. Interestingly enough, the new Jewish year would begin exactly 14 days before the crucifixion of Jesus. So, according to this parable, a long-suffering God gives them until that time to receive Jesus as their Messiah. However, Daniel had already prophesied back in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that the Messiah would be cut off. And then Isaiah 53 prophesied of the Messiah's sufferings. Those prophecies were fulfilled at the cross, and the offer for the immediate restoration of Israel to their prophesied kingdom expired, just as Jesus prophesied it would be in this parable in Luke chapter 13, verse 9, where here's what it says, "...and if it bears fruit, well." But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Interestingly enough, Jesus withered the barren fig tree in Matthew chapter 21, verse 19, within the week leading up to his crucifixion. Kind of eerie, wouldn't you say? Related? Well, I think so. That would have been the next opportunity for the fig tree to bear figs, and it didn't do it, just as the week before Jesus' crucifixion, that would have been the last opportunity for the Jewish leaders to receive Jesus as the Messiah, and they did not. Incidentally, while we aren't given an exact rendering regarding the length of time of Jesus' earthly ministry, this passage might just do it for us. It's logical to conclude that his reference to three years in verse 7 is analogous to the timing of his earthly ministry up to that point. In verse 8, we seem to see a desire to continue the work into the fourth year. Therefore, it's logical to conclude that Jesus' earthly ministry, from John's baptism to Jesus' crucifixion, was somewhere between three and four years, encompassing, by the way, four Passover festivals. Those Passover festivals during the ministry of Jesus are chronicled in the book of John. You got one in John 2, another in John 5, another in John 6, and then the last one in John chapter 13, and also recorded in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. So what we do not know is exactly how long before the Passover festival in John chapter 2, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Some portion of a year lapsed, adding to the subsequent three years leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. So, do you need more proof of hypocrisy among the Pharisees? Well, let's just read these verses, verses 10 through 17 of Luke chapter 13. 
Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Well, the hypocrisy of these Jewish leaders just keeps coming up in this discourse that began back in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. There is a woman who has had a crippling disease for 18 years. Jesus lays hands on her and she's healed. Now the ruler of the synagogue becomes outraged because Jesus had done so on the Sabbath. Jesus points out that these hypocritical Jewish leaders will take care of their animals on the Sabbath, but a woman can't get healed? That's outrageous. The people thought so too, as we see in verse 17, where it says, All his adversaries were put to shame. Incidentally, healing on the Sabbath day was not a violation of Mosaic law. As it happens, the Jewish oral tradition of the day had deemed it a violation. These were man-made supplements to the Mosaic Law, which held no real authority whatsoever, except in their own legalistic system. And finally, in our last section of Scripture for today, verses 18 to 21 of Luke chapter 13, just look at that message grow. Verse 18, Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? It's very, very tiny. The bush that grows from it is so enormous it resembles a tree. Likewise, the message of the kingdom started with Jesus. And just look at it now. It's huge. It's worldwide. Jesus also used the mustard tree's growth as an example in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, paralleled by Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 34. Now, some Bible teachers have read more into this parable than, well, than I feel comfortable doing with any certainty. They've suggested evil on the part of the birds that lodge in the mustard tree. However, on this occasion, Jesus had been addressing the insincerity and hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership. I can see how that one might understand the birds in the tree to be these hypocritical Jewish leaders inasmuch as they are integrated into the growth environment, but not part of the growth. In other words, they are the problem, they are not the solution. In the same context, Jesus uses leaven as a metaphor for the anticipated growth of the kingdom of God. Leaven, also known as yeast, it causes flat dough to grow. Some Bible teachers maintain that whenever a leaven metaphor is used, it's always indicative of evil. 
I've not found that to be the consistent use of the leaven metaphor. It's all about rapid growth instead. Jesus uses the same parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. Both in that passage and here, it's about the rapid growth of the kingdom of God. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton. 